Welcome to Real Talk, Real Women, Breaking the Silence Around Abuse. I am Gemma Serenity Gorokov, your host, and today we have the honor of having a light worker with us, Emma Greenslade. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Emma, can you please introduce yourself with an emphasis on the kind of abuse you overcame in your life? Yeah, okay, thank you. So I am from the UK and uh, I have travelled a lot, but we're focusing on the abuse. So I'm going to kick it off literally right out the bat with that I was, I experienced abuse from conception. Um, so my birth mother was 18 when she had me and it was... Um, an unplanned pregnancy and she and I was then on went on to be adopted but around about I don't know three four months old she was given the money to go and have an abortion so this was the late 60s and she went to some back alley doctor and he actually abused her sexually Her father wasn't very kind to her whilst she was being pregnant. So this was all taken on in utero. And when I was uh, born, I was um, at 10 days old put into a, uh, into a hospital whilst they decided to what to do with me. And that was two days before Christmas. So I was then put into a children's home. And from there, I went into my adopted parents' Um, and everything was okay, I think. Uh, I don't really remember a great deal of my childhood, but what I do remember is that my mum became really sick with cancer when I was six years old, and uh, I she'd lost her mother, and my father had lost his father, and they were my two favourite grandparents. My mum spent the next... 12 years in and out of hospital mm. and I was shunted around to different friends houses neighbors whoever kind of could have me whilst my dad was visiting her in hospital and then um around about 16 years old I was thinking about this this morning actually and it came to me yeah it was definitely 16 years old uh, I was sexually used by two boys that I had gone to school with and I kept quiet about it they told everybody <laughs> my first boyfriend I kind of feel like I'm really just reeling it off but my first boyfriend I was in my early 20s and he was physically abusive and I didn't really know any different you know I, I was grew up in the 70s in the age where parents smack kids and you know I he used to thump me and I thought it was because I was bad now I had learned through my childhood that I well I believed that I was unlucky because you know I wasn't wanted and all these different things that had happened to me through through my childhood I went off traveling and I, by this stage, I'd quite heavily got into drinks and drinking drugs, alcoholic mm. drugs and smoking. And, you know, I had a lot of 
sexual relations uh, for wanting to find something really that well I hadn't didn't receive not knowing that you know it's inside of you I went off traveling for a couple of years when I came back I met this other chap who um, uh, was also physically abusive and he was even more physically abusive than the first boyfriend and that relationship actually ended up with uh, the police coming, the armed police coming, um, because he had chased me around the house with a samurai sword and I had run out of the house in my socks. I know that it was Christmas time. Whenever I split up with boyfriends, it was always Christmas time, even with my ex-husband. And... I just carried on numbing all these emotions, all these feelings um, with drugs and alcohol. Mm. I then met my uh, husband, then, yeah, who became the, the chap that became my husband, and everything was really going very well until, until we got engaged and he started behaving a little bit different, but I kind of thought about it and I thought, oh, you know, well, he's going through this and he's going through that. And I obviously I'm not behaving properly. I'm not, you know, I'm <laughs> that thing from childhood, I'm not being accepted, not doing the right thing. And I kind of just let it go. And then we got married and we were on our honeymoon and he behaved in a really weird way. And I was like, oh. And I knew that I should never have married him, but I carried on. And then we had children and uh, it was off and on and off and on. It was very, it was really roller coaster relationship. But he didn't, he didn't bring, he did bring money into the house. But then he, when I became pregnant with my first daughter, he became mentally unwell. And so everything was kind of on my shoulders, you know, I did everything. All I remember him doing was reading the Times newspaper in the garden through the summer. We had some financial difficulties and we went off to India. Um, this is really shortening it now. We went off to India together with one child. I became pregnant with my second child or our second child. And we'd gone to India because I didn't want to pay capital gains tax. I'd had a big property, you know, six-figure business, passive income. And I'd sold off a lot of my property. This was just before the credit crunch. And we went off to India so I didn't have to pay capital gains tax. And what I realised when I was there was that I was really isolated. And with the mentality of the men in India where the women are kind of lower down and they do everything and he became even more narcissistic and that's when I started to realize that actually this this man's delusional he's got these grandiose ideas and he thinks that I'm the one that's kind of bringing them forth <sighs> it became um we were me and the kids had so I'd had one the, the second child whilst we were living in India and uh this was now 2008 
and the credit crunch had hit and we were and the finances were snowballing out of control and um I remember I used to work because of the time difference kind of early evening in India and then I would work until like midnight and then I'd breastfeed all, all night I mean I was a real absolute mess and he just didn't seem to care and the more, the harder I worked and the more I kind of tried to fold myself into pieces to fit in around him, it was never good enough. And eventually uh, the children and I had gone, come to England for a holiday and he had stayed back in India and I came back and I was absolutely exhausted. The, the, the baby had been teething all the way through our five-week trip and we had been staying at you know different family homes and what have you and I was just consciously aware that the baby was crying because she was teething so I was awake most of the night to make sure that she didn't wake the rest of the hands up when I got back to India I was I was I was not very well mentally physically emotionally and he just didn't give a damn about that and I remember we'd gone out for dinner. I'd only been back a couple of days. We'd gone out for dinner and he had been really nasty. And I'd cried. I hadn't eaten. I, we were sitting in a Chinese restaurant and he was stuffing his face. And I was just tears rolling down my face. And I mean, I look back now and I think, why did I not just get up and leave? As we were driving back, home we had to go across the, the Panjim bridge and if anybody's been to Goa they would know that there's this massive bridge that goes from Panjim up to the north of you know, north of Goa and I was we had this quite high up vehicle and he didn't need to wear seatbelts and I was like looking at it and I thought it would be so easy for me to wind down the window and launch as if I'm flipping superwoman launch myself out the window over the banister of the you know the rail of the bridge and down into the river below that was my lowest point and i realized i needed to then do something about my mental health so i took myself off to a psychiatrist and uh, I didn't tell my ex-husband or I didn't tell my husband at the time. And for about three weeks, and the psychiatrist put me on lithium, which was actually completely the wrong drug to put me on. And he diagnosed me as bipolar. And now I know that that was the wrong diagnosis. Um, and after about three weeks, I told him I need to have a break. I need to go away for, you know, catch up on sleep and what have you. And he was, and I told him that I'd been to the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist wanted to see him. When we went to see the psychiatrist, the, uh, the chap said, what do you think of this situation? Well, it's just ridiculous. She just needs to get on with it. And I'd explain to the psychiatrist when... He, when I was pregnant with my first daughter, that he had been on tablets, I don't know what they were, and we had gone to see a clinical psychologist together because he was so unhappy. He had blamed that all on me, you know, nothing was ever his fault. And so the psychiatrist said to him, well, didn't you have tablets and didn't 
you have some mental problems. Well, that's not the same because she caused them. Wow. So off I went, went off to, um, went off to the mountains, the Himalayas and spent some time and, you know, I had, a, we had this luxurious life and I was in this five-star Oberoi hotel and having, um, I was having help every day and they, the chap said, I don't think that you're bipolar. And then I met actually somebody else and there's a whole story around that. But I told him and he said no and he was very spiritual and he was telling me that I wasn't breathing properly. So he taught me how to breathe and he said, you're not bipolar. You need to get off those tablets. And honestly, Gemma, those tablets, I was actually, it took me longer to get off them than I was on, on them. So if anybody knows about lithium, you have to come off them really slowly. At that time, I ballooned, I got really fat, my hair started falling out, my face was all chubby. You know, I was in even more of a mess than I was. So I got off the tablets and uh, that kind of gave me clarity that things really were quite bad. And it was on my birthday, my 40th birthday, that my ex-husband made me cry well he didn't make me cry but I cried I cried twice on my birthday and it was that day that I was like right this has got to stop all right so that 40th birthday is your key transition moment even though there was a first one with that suicide ideation of flying off the bridge and call it a life I get it but that second one at 40 years old at your birthday crying the day of your birthday realizing i should be celebrating i should be loved i should be all of that and i'm none of that that's not okay change yeah. now all right yes so how that decision at your 40th birthday shaped the next part of your life so, so yeah so what happened <laughs> i would like to say everything went really well and swimmingly and it um but it didn't so i've got the two children my older daughter she was causing problems at school and the school asked us to take her to a psychiatrist because I was still half in half out you know for me marriage was for life and I was and I'd already kind of the reason that we'd gone to India was because we had been having a separation period I probably forgot to mention that and we you know this was the second time of having a go at our marriage and I so I was still like I'm, I'm half in half out we went to see the psychiatrist and she psychologist should I say she said it's your relationship that's causing the problem I was like wow that's so powerful so that was another kind of I'm on the right path and I had made that decision on my birthday on my 40th birthday that at the end of our tenancy which was six months later I was going to leave but I hadn't told him at this point I was kind of you know putting things in place to start leaving if we cast our mind back to the 2008 credit crunch, I think we were in 2010 at this point, 2008 credit crunch, 
I had had funding with an Icelandic bank. And so things, had, you know, they were starting to really snowball out of control. He had been um, creating a restaurant or trying to build this restaurant. And he had maxed out my credit cards to the tune of £100,000. So it was a lot of money. And I was starting to have this financial financial abuse as well, really. And always kind of robbing people to pay Paul and trying to find money. And so we had that going on as well. So February, I think this must have been about February time when the psychologist said about it. And I remember sitting him down uh, in our office and I wanted, and I had a chat about the situation. And I was like, you know, I have spent the past two years trying to fold myself into pieces to appease you. Well, you haven't done a very good job, would be his answer. And I said, you know, after what the psychologist has said, I really feel that it maybe it would it's your time to put in a little bit of effort into the relationship. You know, he was emotionally unavailable. People didn't even know that I had a husband because he was never with me. He was always doing his own thing. Um, and, he, and his answer to me was, a leopard does not change its spots. I was like, well, if you're not prepared to put any work into this, if not prepared to put any effort into this, then I'm, you know, I'm, this is the end. And that was it. He was quite happy with that. The financial situation became even more dire in that uh, we had no money. So he had this big, he had this restaurant going, he had staff, we, we had staff, you know, we had a nanny, a cook, a driver, cleaner, housekeeper, and we didn't have the money to pay. So I stopped paying the, uh, the mortgages on some of the properties. So we kind of had this three-month buffer to, to pay for things and work out what we were going to do. And I remember in um, July it was, so six months later, I moved out of this enormous house that we had into a much smaller house. And he took nothing with him. He just took a suitcase. And I was the one that had to move all this enormous house. I mean, it was absolutely huge. Wow. So, uh, Emma, my question for you, how did the light worker was weaving itself into your life so that now you can be a light worker? Yeah, good question. So I had learned... Uh, I had been attuned to Reiki when I was pregnant with my first daughter. I then became attuned to Reiki 2 when I was pregnant with my second daughter. And I knew that I realised that there was something bigger than us, something more powerful. Now, actually, I'm going to just now cast us back to when I was 18 years old, I went off to train with horses at a professional riding establishment. 
And the lady there, she used to do, the owner of the place, and Molly Sivright was her name, she actually used to talk to the horses through thought. So this is where it was all starting to come, you know, something different, something bigger, something that we can't explain, how we can communicate with animals just telepathically. She also used to do, uh, she would call it healing hands, I think. And somebody would fall off a horse and she would just put her hands there and it'd become all warm. So, so you know, the, the, the seeds had started to be sown. And I could generally tell what was wrong with the horse, why it was limping or what have you. And, you know, I could tell something was going to get infected, perhaps with the horses or with humans. And I would take that back to my mum. And I believe that I was kind of brought to this world um, to help my mum through that really bad time of her cancer. But so things, you know, all these seeds were starting to, to be sown. And when I was, so a year after my, the breakdown of my marriage, for a year I hit the bottle and, uh, you know, to, just numbed out the pain. But one day I woke up with this massive, with this quiet voice in my head, there's got to be another way. The kids were watching TV and I had, you know, I'd been out drinking the night before and I realised that actually I needed to stop drinking, stop smoking, stop the drugs and I even stopped coffee all on this day and I had to get myself cleaned up. And it was from that point that things started. You know, I'm in this spiritual India and the smorgasbord of different therapies and gurus and what have you that I just, just gobbled up. And probably a couple of, I'm going to say six weeks later, I was walking through the quarry. So we used to go and swim in the quarries through the monsoon. And I was walking through the quarry and there was a, and I said to myself, I wonder if there's any snakes here. And with that, there was this water snake that came past. And I was like, okay, thanks for letting me know that you're here. And it just, you know, things just came my way and started manifesting and bringing people towards me. And I learned more about being a light worker and I'm a light worker and I realized that I had this intuitive ability to feel other people's feelings and I realized that actually all those things that had happened to me before were just all these ways of communicating with other people. I think the real thing that happened for me Gemma is in 2012, my ex-husband took the children on holiday to India. So he had flown off into the sunset, literally, to go and get on with his life in England, leaving me in India with the two children, two years old and five years old, and this, you know, all these phone calls about debt. I haven't told you about the debt, but <laughs> the debt was £400,000 that he had left me with it was all in my name 
But he took the children off to England to have a holiday and he didn't bring them back. He told me that he wasn't going to bring them back and that I had to come to England, pack up India and come and live back in England. I was like, oh my God. I phoned my solicitor and um, he said, you'll be lucky if you'll get if you get your children back. I've just had I've just been dealing with somebody, it's cost her eighty thousand pounds and it's taken six months for her to get her children back. If you you will have to live here. I was like, I don't even have eighty thousand pounds. I've got four hundred thousand pounds of debt. What am I going to do? And I literally prayed. Okay. So that is your biggest connection with the divine, with the, 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 the spiritual realm that is so much bigger and so much more creative than we are. Okay, now you are a light worker. How can people reach out to you and benefit from that enlightenment that you bring through you're working with the light, working with the spiritual realm, working with love, light, peace, energy. How can people reach out to you? Okay, so I have a website. It's uh, Rise of the Phoenix. I also have a little link tree where you can come and find me. Lots of different things. I'm Rise Fe of the Phoenix. Yes, Rise oh. of the Phoenix. You can find me on Instagram, Emma Greenslade 1111. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, and so I do many different things, Gemma. I have spent a lot of time and a lot of resources learning lots of ways. I do Akashic clearings. But my biggest thing that I think is the beauty of working with other people is helping them create their their true identity after abuse because what happens whether your abuse started childhood teenagers when you're older we have we we just have these layers upon layers upon layers of shit that's put upon us and we spend time folding ourselves into pieces, trying to be that good girl. We spend time trying to be accepted and constricting, repressing and rejecting parts of us until we actually have no idea who we really are. And that was what was apparent for me when I was married. I had, I had, I'd, I'd even lived his dream. And we don't know how what dreams are ours. We don't we we haven't connected to our dreams. We can't actually even set goals because we're too scared that we're gonna get it wrong and be abused. So my gift is to clear away all that stuff and really set people on the path to accomplishing the dream life that they deserve. We are able to find the treasure within each person and then they can decide 
how they're going to, yeah, just be from this moment forwards. Wow. Emma, thank you for sharing little parts of your stories. There is so much more, and I acknowledge that fully, there is so much more. The essential thing is that you went through abuse from conception until your 40th birthday. Then at your 40th birthday, you started to actually take ownership of your life, become an active part of your identity, choosing for yourself. And of course, it went through ups and downs and, and resistance and an awful part. But however, the silver lining is that when you work with the light, with love, with peace, with that spiritual realm based on divine consciousness, that's when you actually connect with yourself, connect with others, and become an angel to help others on their journey. And that is absolutely amazing. And now your business is to be a light worker. How beautiful. <laughs> I mean, that is a testament to living a life beyond abuse. Thank yeah, you. yeah. Taking radical responsibility for us being on this planet. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. And then creating, co-creating with the universe. Mm -hmm. Totally, totally. Thank you, Emma. Thank you for enlightening us. Thank you for having me. <laughs>